the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast. On today's show, we welcome a longtime VC investor who brings the perspective from both sides of the pond. Fred Destin, the founder of Stride VC, a seed fund operating out of London and currently investing out of its second 123 million pound fund, shares his views on the venture capital industry. Prior to Stride, Fred was a general partner at Axel and Accomplice, formerly known as Atlas Venture. He's invested in some of Venture's big winners, including Deliveroo, PillPack, Kazoo, Zoopla, Secret Escapes, Integral Ad Science, and more, generating over $1.4 billion in value to investors and a blended multiple in excess of seven times. Fred has been featured on the Forbes European Midas list a number of times. Fred and I had a fascinating discussion about the hows and the whys of early stage venture. We discussed how VCs can navigate the difference between decision points and discovery zones, why a positive bias towards people can be a driver of returns in venture, why trust, truth, and empathy make for a strong and enduring founder relationship, how and why simplicity can be core to company building, how to evaluate risk versus reward at early stage, and the future of early stage venture. Thanks, Fred, for coming on the podcast to share your wisdom on early stage investing. We hope you enjoy. Fred, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to have you. So many interesting perspectives based on your background as a VC, US, Europe. You've seen a lot. You've done a lot. Would love to hear what you think of the current environment right now. I think we live in a beautifully chaotic and volatile world at the moment, which in theory is extremely well suited to venture. So... On the one hand, we're looking at some of the biggest microwaves that we've seen since the arrival of mobile platforms in 09. So whether you're looking at synthetic biology, tech bio, everything that has to do with computational science. On the other hand, we've got, of course, AI. So just massive microwaves that are coming through, which are very exciting. Of course, we are digesting the biggest bubble we've had since 99. And this one with, of course, a lot more capital at work. I think the drop in market cap of Netflix probably encompasses the entire internet bubble in itself. So this is a much bigger part of the economy. And a a lot of uncertainty in LP land, I think in terms of finding out, understanding liquidity, understanding whether to be investing in the markets right now on the back of getting absolutely slammed on current valuations. So it's just absolutely fascinating to watch. I do think venture is uniquely positioned to deal with uncertain times in startups. So within this lies opportunity. The question is how to ride it. You've done a few different things in your venture career. You also worked on Wall Street. So you understand finance at a macro level from a trading perspective. Now, you built Stride. Tell us a little bit about Stride. So I was a general partner at Excel. When you're running 500 million funds or 500 plus, and you're trying to deliver 3x net plus, there is really no 
alternative to being an absolute leader in your market. And Excel was predicated on across 14 markets, basically identifying per category or per thematic the best emerging companies and then duking it out against the other tier ones, whether that's an index or someone like that. And when you move to a seed fund, all of that goes out the window because you're not playing for market share. You're playing for a standalone strategy that makes sense. And for me, I went right the other extreme, which is to a fully artisan model, unscalable by nature, partner-driven, and small by design. So running small funds with a narrow focus within a specific market and playing the boutique game, which I personally love. It simplifies the strategy dramatically. It is a very different game than building a 15-market execution machine. How do you think about playing the artisan game in a world where technology and innovation only continues to increase, whether it's AI, whether it's technology impacting venture capital itself as a business. You see many firms become multi-strategy platform firms. Why go the opposite way now? I love both strategies. And if I look at the evolution of the market, I think undifferentiated middle-of-the-road strategies probably don't have a very bright future. If on the one hand you want to build technology, let's take Alexei Ohanian on the West Coast with 1776, and He's building a technology-powered platform to introduce people to each other at scale. Okay, that's an amazing product. It's a technology-powered product. On the other hand, if I look at the universal needs of founders, they have to do with help me make the right strategy decisions, help me show up as a leader, help me not break under pressure, help me identify the right talent and actually close them, help me build narratives that make sense. These things cannot be automated away. For me, it's about knowing why you exist and why you're good at. And I think boutiques are actually a perfect complement to technology-powered platforms, and they collaborate really, really well because they do fundamentally different things. When you were thinking about starting Stride, how did you think about productizing your firm and your offerings? When I started Stride, the first question I asked myself is, why is it that venture capital is so often a poor experience for founders? And fundamentally, it goes back to a simple word, which is trust. We start with founders selling upside, that is usually poetry, and venture capitalists pretending that they believe it, which they don't. So you're starting usually from a place of, I've sold you a story which you didn't really buy. We're just going to hope for the best. In reality, we're taking a leap of faith together into building a business that's going to be difficult to build collectively. And the real question is whether we are powering each other up to build a better outcome and de-risk slash maximize the upside, whichever way you want to look at it. So if you can get back to a place where you're grounding yourself in trust and truth with your founder, you're building a foundation from which you can have much better discussions. By the way, that is true for your relationship with your spouse. That's true for your relationship with your partners at work. And that's certainly true for relationship with founders because 
We live in a world of complete chaos. We cannot predict the future. We have to make decisions in conditions of uncertainty. The only thing we have going for us really is the quality of our collective thinking and decision making. And that doesn't work if we don't base ourselves in trust and truth. So that was the founding principle and really what was our ethos. Two questions there. One, how do you go about building trust in a world where you started Stride during time when it became much more competitive at seed, rounds were getting done a lot faster, maybe had less time to build relationships of trust or at least of depth of knowledge. How did you go about doing that? And then how do you sell that product to founders that I can trust you, you can trust me, let's build something together? The mode of engagement of a typical VC to founder is founder selling, VC leaning back, taking notes, and then I'll get back to you as to whether I'd like to invest. That's usually the experience that you have in a fundraising conversation. There's no reason why that is. In other words, you could say, you know what, why don't we just drop the pitch deck and let's grab a whiteboard or a piece of paper and let's start thinking together about what's going to be hard to build. Or let's start thinking together about the unexplored areas of risk that are worth thinking about. And an unexplored area of risk is probably something that neither the founder nor you have an answer to. It could be that your pricing model is as yet undefined and there are different options that you can think about and explore. Now you're moving to, to a place where you can talk together about an unresolved business problem or risk area. And I can see whether you're defensive, you think on your feet, how you're engaging, how you're thinking through problems. And likewise, you can see whether I'm in a position where I'm trying to tell you how the world works or provide ungrounded advice or just telling you what to do. Now we're, I I don't want to use a grandiose word, but let's say we're co-creating. And from that place, we can see how we're going to work together. I learn 10 times more in one meeting like that than I would in five hours of diligence where I'm sitting back and running through the different options. Why don't we show up like that all the time and we accelerate our rate of learning? By the way, we're building relationship with the founder. What am I not doing? I'm not selling. Or if I'm selling, it's really subtle because what I want the founder, he or she to leave the room feeling like, oh, that was a real engagement. That person understood my business. The quality of the interaction was great. And I feel like working with them. If I've done these things, I've been selling, except I was selling from a position of just showing up as I am. I'm also not pretending to know. If I don't know, I'm like, I have no idea how to solve that problem. You would be surprised how many times founders go, oh, I thank you for your refreshing honesty of saying, I have no clue. It's a, there's a lot of power in saying, I have no idea what to do. So especially when you have to move quickly, you're trying to hack your way through some form of relationship, you have to take a different pathway. We have to break through this dance of selling and buying to a place of working together really quickly. That's a great way to build a relationship. By the way, I think companies should do this when they think about hiring too. You should test people out more than just a classic interview format because that's how you really get to know people better. The one challenge with this framework though is that in the process of working with someone, potentially 
you start to want to see them succeed and start thinking about working together before you've actually come to the conclusion of working together, getting a set of terms in place. That can potentially happen. Maybe you found a way to, to modulate that feeling. How do you repress that enough in the process of co-creating? Because you may be more inclined or biased to want to work with them if you enjoy those interactions. This is a great question. I have two answers to that. First of all, the product of a venture capital organization is decisions. At the end of the day, our product is decisions. The quality of our decision-making engine determines the quality of everything else. And so the first thing I would say is I have decision points and I have discovery zones. A decision point is I want to spend more time with this founder. Then I go into the playground and the playground is the discovery zone. I can steal man my agreement, straw man my agreement, disagree with myself, challenge my own assumptions. I'm not trying to make a decision every time I interact with a founder, neither, neither is the rest of my team. And so we're in discovery mode, we're playing. And, and hopefully we enjoy playing together. Then I go back to the next decision point. The next decision point might be we know enough that we are willing to commit or negotiate terms or whatever it is, or we know enough that we are willing to negotiate terms, but we need to do more work, whatever it is. So we're quite clear about what's decision, what's discovery. And in the discovery playground, you can do whatever you want. The other thing is I make it explicit to founders, and this is a really great exercise to force yourself through. It's a little bit risky, but this is where you gain trust. You say, look, we are 35% likely to give you a yes because we're early in the process and there's quite a bit more work to do. Then two or three days later, you've done more work, you spend more time. It's like, I think I'm at 70% positive. And here are the three or four questions that I'm still blocking on. And so in that case, I've had a fantastic time. We had a great discussion. And then I'm giving the founder the tools, including by the way to go to competition, which is the part that's risky. But I'm like, we're kind of 70% there. I'm not overselling. I'm just, these are the three things that we need to resolve. If they really want to work with you, they're going to work with you towards resolving these things. And then it is the work of rationalizing your way back to decision. That's where discipline comes in. Discipline is an acquired skill because for me, I have a positive bias towards people. I know that about myself. I will almost make it explicit. I'll tell the founders, hey, I tend to get very enthusiastic. I need to sleep over it. And then I'm going to deconstruct your economics and deconstruct your scaling mechanics and deconstruct everything. And I'm going to come back with hard questions. I'll verbalize it. And then people are like, oh, it's kind of tough to get money here. But what a great process. I'm making you part of my own decision making. I'm opening up my own brain, dear founder, so you can see what's going on inside. And they're like, oh, that's really cool. I understand exactly what's going on there on the other side. Except instead of this black box that I'm waiting for an answer, that's going to be year or nay, and it's some kind of binary. You said something fascinating, which is that venture capitalists, their job is to make decisions. That's the product. Walk me through what the decision points are for you to A, even make the decision to engage, because that's a cost on your time. Then what are the other decision points that you think about throughout the, the journey, that interaction with the founder? I'm going to take your question and answer it slightly differently because I don't know that the decision points can be mapped precisely. However, when you meet a founder, what you get is a narrative. This is why I started the company. You get a narrative about a product and a market they're trying to serve and all that stuff. And you can follow that narrative. What's interesting is to go a little bit meta. The question a venture capitalist needs to ask himself or herself is, does this kind of risk belong in the portfolio? 
You don't know if it's going to work or not going to work. Otherwise, you'd be a genius. What you can determine is whether the risk-return trade-off and funding pathway that you're looking at are the types of risks that belong in your portfolio. That much you can say. And, and if you go into a meeting and asking the questions I'm just going to outline, you'll have a different mindset. First of all, is this fundamentally interesting? Are we attacking a fundamentally interesting problem? Is there some kind of insight that was derived here that is meaningful? Is there some form of innovation here that moves the needle? Because the enemy of venture capital is mediocrity. It is possible sometimes that you have feature wedges into large markets, but you have to be attacking big enough problems. Is there a glimmer of greatness in this business somewhere? Is then some form of uncapped upside? And are we attacking something of fundamental value? That filters out 90% of what we look at, to be honest. Now, you have to have the imagination to see whether a wedge is a way into very large markets. There's some caveats to that, but the vast majority we filter out simply on that criteria. Your second question then is, is this a team that could transform its industry? And I think there's a fundamental difference between, I hear this all the time, it's like, yeah, the founders are great. Okay, what, that, what does that mean? Oh, they're compelling, they're domain experts, etc., etc. And so you get all these features that you can attach to them. And then you say, well, that's cool. Now, if you put yourself a mile above the room and you look from the outside in and you say, is this the kind of team that can reshape an industry? Would you want to work for them? Do you feel in them something inherently special? Is there some kind of special DNA here? And they could be 21 or 45, it doesn't matter. But is there some kind of special DNA here that inspires you? And that part, there's a difference between we back the team to we are backing people who can reshape industries. The second hurdle typically is People are good, people are competent, people are blah, 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 but they don't quite evoke that level of passion. Then we get into, even though we're early and we invest at seed, let's just deconstruct whether this is a venture scale machine somehow. If we can't achieve venture scale within the timeframes we're looking at, then we shouldn't do it. It's somewhere between unit economics or the rent capture or the business model. You can look at this many different ways, but can we achieve venture scale within reasonable timeframes? If not, it's a slow boat to China and you can't really fight against that. Then we look at executability. So in other words, do we understand clear milestones to execute and de-risk along the path together with fundability? What's the funding path of that thing? And then we do a little bit of a risk assessment. We are in the business of taking risk. We are paid to take risks. The question is, do we understand the risks we're taking and do we like them? Like a market timing risk is very, very dangerous at seed. If you really have fundamentally no visibility on market, timing and you're kidding yourself about adoption, that's really hard to fight. If you run this type of decision-making engine, you'll notice that you're not really having a discussion about, do I like the product? Do I like the margin? All these are important clues, but you've just gone meta in your decision-making and now you have a, a repeatable and universal framework that helps you determine whether it's the kind of thing that belongs in the portfolio. And then you have these heuristics that everybody utilizes, which is going to get to 100 million ROR, can return the fund and all that stuff, which are useful checkpoints. Those are the outputs to the inputs, though, of all of those things that you said, which is it's almost more important to care about the the RPMs when you're cycling. That, that'll create the output of calories. And the 100 million ARR is, is the calories. <clears throat> One question there as you walk through this process that comes to my mind is, what did you need to improve on most? in that decision-making process through your career as a venture investor? I think the cardinal virtue, it's a mix between patience and conviction. 
So for me, on occasion, I will see something that blinds me. Once I get my head around it, it is blindingly obvious that I should do it. And having the patience to wait for those. Now you could say, when could it ever be blindingly obvious? Well, if you've trained your filter enough, there are certain things where you recognize very quickly. Like when I met Pillpack for the first time, I think my first meeting, I was wowed by TJ and Elliot. My second meeting, I got my head around unit economics and I'm like, okay, this is a monster. And then, of course, I went through the work of rationalizing, making sure we could execute. The robotics were quite complicated. There were regulatory issues, etc. So there was a set of hurdles to go through. But once I had the basics down, I'm like, okay, this is a monster. Then the question is, is it a good investment decision? Well, they go do the work and be disciplined because there are reasons why you'd want to pass. But the initial impulse from a strategy standpoint was obvious. Integral ad science which solved the problem of whether you could check for the nature of inventory before you bid on ads in real time. This is an insanely hard problem to solve. And then the question was, what well, can they do it? So there was a lot of work in just making sure that technology could actually be executed on. So it's a very different set of diligence characteristics. But if you understood fundamentally the problem they were solving, like, okay, I don't even know how we're going to monetize this thing, but they're attacking a fundamentally interesting problem. And they started in quite a narrow niche market, but that technology expanded out and out and out to a four and a half billion dollar exit. And that one required real conviction because honestly, people laughed at me when I wrote that check. Like it, literally, I had one venture capitalist who gave me a one hour lecture as to why I was going to lose my shirt on that deal. So on that point, are there certain features about either founder or product or the business that outweigh the decision or maybe the thoughts on one shoulder that says, here's all the issues, but I just have to do it. I personally like businesses where you're completely in control of your own destiny and where you can see a highly repeatable and brutally effective core value prop that you can repeat at the eternum. Take a completely random proxy or analog, but if you think about Instagram or Facebook, they were built on a few canonical actions that were like, share, and comment. It's, it's almost fractal-like. These things take off, you kind of repeat like, share, and comment, and then this thing becomes absolutely enormous. And very often in businesses, do you have a rinse and repeat on your core value prop where you can build loops that are quicker and quicker and quicker and then afford you the opportunity to build around it? So a lot of the businesses I've backed, which were great, they had something quite simple at their core. And what I've learned over time is there is such a thing as you can be deep on strategy and deep in market analysis and deep in understanding people and then dumb yourself down. In other words, do people need it? Will they pay a lot for it? Can you sell a lot of it? There's a point where you actually want to go back to the basics of, will this narrative resonate with market again and again and again and again? I allow myself to go deep and go experimental, and then I bring myself back to simplicity. How much is that point predicated on the founders being able to articulate the simplicity of the business or in fundraising conversations or in the process of co-creating these ideas and thought processes with you, bringing it down to that level? I would observe that a lot of the most successful companies out there have a lot of complexity under the bonnet and incredibly simple narratives driving them. Um, Pellpack, 
online pharmacy for people with complex conditions, behind the scenes, robotics, computer, computer vision verification of packets of meds that flow by at whatever, 500 packets a second, insane backend, just a lot of complexity. But on the front end, you get it instantly. That's a feature of a lot of successful businesses. I think powerful narratives make the world go round. That is true for absolutely every business and, and actually most things, your ideologies, etc. If you cannot articulate these narratives, your life will be incredibly hard. And definitely the best founders I've backed, their strategy is always very simple. The number of KPIs they track is always very limited. Their strategy shifts very little over time. I remember when Alex Chesterman wrote the initial memo for Zoopla, I think if we pulled that one off the shelf, actually we did six years later, it was all there. And the strategy was simple and it stayed consistent. And we ran the company on five KPIs and there's a few added over time, but it was in this clarity of purpose, vision, mission, repeated over and over and over was a superpower. You mentioned before about patience being one of the key pieces of being a great venture capitalist. I, I want to ask one question about what you said about patience, which is having the patience to wait for the best businesses. That makes sense in theory, but how does that align with the business model of venture, particularly for funds that are earlier in their journey as a business? Fund one, fund two, you have to raise the next fund, generally on markups, and it may take time to be right. And LPs want to see progress. So how do you think about what you said of having the patience to wait in the context of the current model for venture capital for both GPs and LPs? I personally find it difficult to invest really fast. If I was building a seed fund today and I put myself in the mindset of giving myself a four-year investment period on a reasonably sized portfolio, and I really had the patience to wait for great things, I bet you that the output would be better. If I look at our fund too, there are companies in there that are, most of them are sub two years in the portfolio. Progress is measurable and it's not on up rounds, but you look at the substance of these companies and they're demonstrably moving and there's quite a few of them. Now, I don't have up rounds, sure, but do I have a solid narrative of a diversified set of value drivers? I think so. You can go and challenge LPs on that stuff a little bit, I think as well, which is to say, look, we are moving at a reasonable pace. We are not in the game of providing you with uprounds at all costs quickly, but look at the substance of what we built. And I, I, I think a lot of LPs will re resonate really well with that. It brings up an interesting question, though, because a fund will often have to raise maybe a bit sooner after their first fund, their second fund, based on really only markups. And yet some of the best companies, it may take seven to 10 years to really tell whether that's the case. Balancing that from a business building perspective, I imagine, has to be challenging. If you look at our model, we will try and preempt our best companies. I'm taking my best assets. And I'm trying to go see the founders early and say, here's another two to three million bucks. Preemption is the wrong word. I'm just trying to put a fair offer that allows them to keep executing. And it's more quick continuity. I'll give you a fair price. Let's keep rolling. So I'm foregoing the ability to show an external markup on my best companies. But then I go to the LPs and say, hey, look, 
we think this is an exceptional business. We just backed it again. And then you got to stand tall and explain why and go like, I didn't look for external validation because I'm here to make money for you. And we went against accepted wisdom. If we haven't learned anything over the past years, you got to be able to tell a story of fundamental business building and value that's beyond whatever marker or some other fund is attached to your company. VCs who've now gone through this current cycle and maybe prior cycles before, as you have, do you think they will think about types of companies they invest in differently? Mm, I don't know if it's company type. I think what a crisis like this teaches you, I frankly, is just humility and the value of capital. The reality, when you raise too much money, what will happen is a founder of the best disposition will start to hire people that he kind of needs, but doesn't really, and they'll hire an external consultant, and the marketing person will want a team of four or five. And it's fascinating how before you know it, you start having a machine that has its own momentum and is running away from the founder themselves. The board, of course, is one level removed, doesn't quite see that, but the board has set the conditions because of the expectations where that's happening too quickly and not with a particularly smart eye towards the use of capital. I think what you develop over time is, again, back to the patient's point, which is it is freaking hard to spend cash quickly and well inside a startup when you're learning just about everything in your business. And it is very easy to fall prey to entropy. You got to go slow. You got to hire when you're hurting and when it's really painful, and then wait until you have repeatability in your processes and you've really understood them, etc., before you start turning up for scale. Now, this is the complicated thing about building venture businesses, which is how do I prep for scale, but then not spend ahead of my skis? That's always the debate. But when capital's loose, people just don't think about any of that. We're just like, we're recruiting, we're building teams, we're going, we're going to raise the next round. None of this is even in the zone because everything's happening too fast and we're vaporizing cash. So I think what will happen with the generation of current investors, provided they go deep into the companies and learn the lessons, which is important, is there will be a renewed respect for how tough it is to raise, for how valuable resources are, and for the need to use them intelligently, sparingly, thoughtfully, etc. And when you have to fire people again and again and again, next time around, you're like, it's just higher with a lot more care and thoughtfulness and precision. Do you think founders will think about the relationships that they want to have with VCs differently? Mm, I honestly don't think we have solved this issue of VC founder relationship well enough. It's improved dramatically. So don't get me wrong compared to 10 years ago, the venture product has improved and there's a lot more people who live with a good degree of empathy and who are closer to the reality of the companies. However, I think that when we go through this dramatic crisis like that, a lot of people get scarred and hurt and burnt and the company's taken away. And the reality is it, it's just, it's not easy to show up well when you're in that level of crisis. I see a lot of founders being somewhat cynical about VC and I understand why, because on the way up in 2021, every VC is like, oh, humbled to be investor in X and whatever, and taking a lot of glory for being in the room. And founders are like, sure, man, I know how you showed up at the board. 
And then when the market gets tough, people distance themselves from the companies that they backed. This is not cool. It's like be on the journey all the way through the journey and, and own it instead of trying to cleanse your track record by keeping the ones that did well that you managed to sell on time or pass the bag to some retail investor and then wipe the other ones off your LinkedIn profiles. I, I think that's a little bit the world we live in. And I think founders are rightly so a little bit cynical about that whole game. What would you change about venture going forward if you could? Startups are fast evolutionary organisms. The beauty of startups is that they can change their plan, their organization methods, their organigrams, their people very, very quickly on a dime pivot. And I think venture is the best form of capital that we have to follow that kind of fast evolutionary path. So in theory, highly adaptable capital that comes in smaller to bigger chunks and that can follow this evolutionary path. So what I'd love to see more of is, I guess, this institutional memory across rounds. What I find quite damaging in this switch from seed to growth, somewhere along the way, everything gets lost. The, the trust and the connectivity to the founders and the institutional memory and seed investors leave. You lose a little bit of the history of the company, which is part of its mythical story and its culture and its history. Startups are kind of movements of people that decide to do things that are unreasonable and at some point turn into real companies. And I find that we lose our purpose we lose the magic of the mission that we're on. I'd love to see that being protected a little bit more and maybe for founders to be able to protect that a little bit more because at the end of the day, they're the keepers of the castle and the mission of what they're trying to build. And this is not an answer to your question, but maybe this is a something that I aspire to see within the industry. I don't know if I'm probably completely dreaming, right? But <laughs> it'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, look, I think the industry will continue to evolve, especially after it goes through a certain period of exuberance and now it's in a different place. What would you say to that point is your most contrarian view on venture right now? I think people are coming up with narratives that venture's dead, venture's needs to change. Maybe my contrarian narrative is venture's okay. There are funds being raised. There's more money coming. There will be some changes here and there. But actually, I think the industry is growing and thriving and it's going through of course, a reckoning after a pretty extreme bubble. But innovation's alive and well. Startups are everywhere. We have big innovation waves. We have more pools of capital coming into ventures still and into privates. I think that as is usual when markets are tough, people have flipped the narratives over to the negative and making grand pronouncements about the death of venture. Yes, there'll be evolution, but I think the venture industry is doing just fine. I think we are seeing new funds emerge that are very strong, established brands that are growing stronger, general catalyst. In Europe, maybe let's point at Creandum as somebody that really broken into the tier one. And we have visionaries in Berlin and all these great new brands that are popping up and they're changing the landscape. So I think ventures are right. On that point, you bring up funds that are both multi-continental General Atlantic started in the U.S., have a big presence in Europe now. Two funds, Creandum, which, which I believe has a presence in the U.S., but started in Europe, and also Visionaries as well, amongst many others. What's your view on Europe right now? The European ecosystem started in 86. I think it operates at the same level of proficiency as New York, Boston, L.A., 
I, I don't think it's that different. I, I think people tend to build these comparative narratives, which is not that helpful. I think they're well-functioning ecosystems. We are clearly seeing a huge influx of U.S. funds coming in. So I mentioned General Catalyst, Lightspeed, the list goes on and on. If you think about the venture market, I think we have the traditional dominant players, Index XL. We have these new brands that are breaking into new wish brands like Random. And then we, of course, have Sequoia. So all the U.S. super tankers are arriving. And then a fairly thriving seed ecosystem. I, I think Europe's doing okay. I think we are majorly suffering from not having any local giants. We've not built a single large tech company in Europe. Okay, you can point to Spotify. An enterprise software, UiPath, but then they became kind of a U.S. company. And what, Alcatel in the 60s? It's like literally nothing. And so I think that where we suffer dramatically is we have no serious local anchors. We do in media, media tech, sure. We have these national players, which are pretty powerful. Hence, we're always reliant on foreign acquirers for our companies. And if you look at, say, Atlassian, Atlassian is nothing in Europe. They're in India, Australia, of course, the West Coast, like they fly over. So you know, that's one example of a major DevOps, DevTools, product tools company that's not even present. So I think that's really making life quite a bit harder because we then have to build into the US and hope we, we get bought in the US. Let's say you start in Lithuania, you open your European HQ in London, then you have to hop over to the US. It's quite a journey before you can get to a decent scale and get acquired. What do you think it will take for Europe to build a massive European company in Europe for Europe that doesn't need to expand? I think what it will take is for people not to sell. I, I don't know the inside story of DeepMind, but talk about a company that I personally wish we hadn't sold. This is a UK homegrown foundational business, genius acquisition by Google, of course. If they had gone solo, who knows what it might have landed. Now we have maybe Mistral, maybe there is some hope that we'll build independent giants. But apart from ARM, actually I skipped over ARM, but we just don't have enough examples of that. Do you think that the US VCs are moving in because they believe that there can be European giants that will be built in region, or they're moving in because they want to access the European market, bring those companies to the US? I think both. I think they're moving in because they see that there are fund returns to be built. I don't know if these need to be termed as giants or not, but if I'm trying to put 40 companies into my portfolio and the prices are insane in the US and I'm competing with 4,000 funds and I can go into Europe and establish what resembles a tier one brand in under 24 months and cream the market, I mean, great. And whether they can build giants. Can we build 5 billion plus companies? Sure. And I think that has to be the assumption of a bunch of people. 10 billion plus? Yeah, probably. I think beyond that, you're starting to be uh, doing wishful things. We've talked a lot about changing nature of venture. What do you think that younger investors need to think about in this moment, in this market in venture? Your first job as a VC is to be a great investor, period. How sophisticated are you in your investment thinking? Are you pushing the boundaries of how you think about investing? What I observe is too many people maybe who love the perks of the job, but if you ask them to articulate an investment thesis at a slightly deeper level, they falter. I'm consistently surprised by how surface level investment thinking is. It's kind of, 
macrothematic, quality of the founder, company-centric analysis. And I mean, man, let's go build some deep thinking about where the world is going, what constitute venture returns, what areas we need to go into. This is one of the things where I listen to podcasts of young investors from the West Coast, and I'm like, man, they're stretching the envelope. I really consistently, continuously learn from them because they're going to edge areas that don't look like VC style stuff. And they're like, oh, this is really interesting. People are pushing the boundaries within the gaming space of some kind of social interaction, whatever it is. And I'm just wondering what's going on there at the edges of the web. And then you go back to Europe and everybody's like, well, I went to Slash and we danced. And then I spoke to other VC and we're seeing deal flow. I'm like, okay, all right. Original thinking, please. Like give me some contrarian or some view of the world that's unique. So I would say, especially in a chaotic environment like now, amazing opportunities. And I would spend a lot of time going to develop unique viewpoints about the world that will be useful when I'm investing. How can younger investors hone that craft? Okay, so if we're talking about the craft of being a venture capitalist in general, I think that if you think about a sea of undifferentiated investors, which is a kind of a bit of a view of the mind, what can you be brilliant at? The first answer, obviously, is to be a deep vertical specialist in an area. The difficulty for young investors, I think they're being put on the treadmill to source deals, source deals, source deals, source deals. And then most of the time they tend to do it in the same way that everybody else is doing it with the same results. Would you pick one or two or three verticals and go to unusual conferences, go off the beaten path to meet developers and to really immerse yourself and become a deep specialist in an emerging area that's interesting? It may not yield immediately, but with compound knowledge within a year or two or three, you're going to start emerging with a voice and a unique skill set and a level of depth that will probably stand you in good stead in terms of A, being the go-to person internally when everybody at your fund is looking at something like that. And B, more importantly, probably sourcing things that are somewhat exceptional. And C, winning them. Because you can now have a deeply informed conversation with a founder who goes, oh, I want to work with that person. Because ultimately the real test is when a founder says, I'm going to Sequoia, whatever, Excel or something. I'm here because I want to work with that person. And that person is an associate or a principal or something. And like, this is the person I want to work with. When you get to that stage, now you're in the game in a very different way. One thing that jumped out to me about earlier parts of our conversations was how you've created a framework for your decision-making process and the discovery part of that process too, but you've honed that and practiced that. And it works for you. That's probably to some extent based on who you are, how you think. Maybe others can't do that in the same way, but how should people go about the art and science of decision-making and honing that process of making decisions? I don't know that the decision-making process that I described is at all unique to me. I think you want to start from outcomes. And the outcome is... I want to find things that can return the fund, which means in five to seven years time or something, I'm going to have an outcome that is, I own 10% of something that is worth 5 billion if you're running a large fund. Thinking of what you're trying to achieve from that standpoint and working your way back will force you to think more strategically and will force you to elevate the quality of what you look at. Because I think what happens is people look at what's in front of them 
do I like this founder? Do I like the president? Do I like the design of the deck? Do I like the product? And then you're just looking at the thing. And always in life, especially with things like these long running venture investment decisions, elevate your thinking. It's not a question of whether you can measure the addressable market that's irrelevant. But what is the narrative that I need to believe or to be able to build for this thing to achieve the outcome that I'm trying to get to? And go think like that. Go think like you're Ray Dalio. Go read Ray Dalio's principles and just go elevate your thinking because there is too little of that in the world. People are action-oriented and reactive to what they see. Elevate your thinking. It's not because you're 23 that you can't do it. You will learn so much and you will train your brain to think that way. I think it's always the same. You have the task at hand, source, bring a deal forward, sell it internally, etc. It's like, all right, let me elevate myself here. What am I trying to do? I'm building a 20-year track record for me of the things that I believe in and back and bring through. And this is not just about me winning the system and the system might be driving something through my partnership. Am I putting in my library of books Am I putting Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning or am I putting a cheap comic book? What kind of work am I producing here? So I think going meta is always a good idea. Going strategic is always a good idea. Then forcing yourself to have frameworks for thinking that are rigorous and they exist out there. You don't need to invent them. I think you're bringing this to an interesting point because you've covered so many aspects of venture. You've obviously thought very deeply about the process of venture, the business of venture. And you recently made a big decision. I want to make sure we cover that a bit. Walk us through why you decided to pause fundraising for Stride after having built a successful portfolio to date. Interesting question maybe for your listeners is how much of your identity is invested in and associated with your work? And does identity in that sense matter? So for me, what I love about What I do is my craft. And I would say the craft is a decent level of attention and expertise and skill around what it takes to build companies that are developed patiently over time and understanding the nature of my contribution to that. That I love. The second question was, what do I need? And if you'd asked me what I need three years ago, I would have said like, do I need needs? I just want to make sure my kids are okay, my team's okay, my portfolio's okay. Nothing had to do with me. And then the interrogation was, well, okay, so I need creativity, thinking time, I love to write, I need time in nature, I'm an introvert. I was like, just like exploring a little bit what it is that I actually want and then what the nature of my contribution can be. Then when you start intersecting all that, you go, well, okay, so I know this venture game really well, but does that mean I need to keep doing it? Like I'm, I'm on rails here and the rails are, there's a certain forward momentum to success and experience. Imagine it's the same if you had promotions. I was VP sales and I was SVP sales and I was CEO. And there's a certain logic to it. There's a momentum in it by itself. But do you want to keep on that highway just because it looks logical or do you want to go slightly to the right? And I think what I wanted to do was to give myself time to observe myself and the world and see whether I still wanted to do more of the same. When you're in a system... The system is predicated on measuring whether you've raised a fund, etc. That's how we measure everything. Are you on the minus list? How big are your funds? How many funds you raised? And so I think some people find it difficult to 
conceptualize that you may just want to say, well, I, I didn't write those rules. They don't apply to me because I'm a biped that is going through an experience called life. And I'm kind of curious to go explore slightly different things. So that reason for the pause is I'm a biped who's going through an experience called life and I feel like I would like to go experience different things. And if you don't stop the train, you can't get off it, but you can try, but it's likely to be painful. But I would say, again, the interesting question is a question of freedom, which is, did you choose to do what you're doing in this moment? And is it f at a foundational level, is this what you really want? If everybody can pause with that from time to time, so it would be interesting to see what the outcome is. I think it's a really fascinating point because one thing that I've seen from the evolution of private markets, private equity funds first, now venture capital funds, is they're evolving as businesses too. And the founders of these businesses, which are asset management businesses, just need to think through what do they want their business to become. There's no right or wrong answer. It just has to be what's right for you. So from that perspective, that brings up some interesting thoughts, questions when it comes to how you think about building your own business as an asset manager? Yes, I would say the way you're framing the question is still in the context of what do I want my business to become? And my counter to you would be, well, to what extent am I my business or not? This goes back to this question of how much of your identity is baked into your work. And this is the hard question to ask oneself. You know, I'm the founder. I started it, I mean, with Harry, but we built it from scratch. We put love and care into it. We built a brand. And then you go, well, okay, but I am not that. <laughs> there is such a thing as being me, and that is not stride. So I think, you know what, let's phrase it a different way. I have a unique, thank God, I have the opportunity to have a little bit of freedom to explore. How many people have that? And then it's not because... Some other people think I should be building the next fund and who am I to stop that, again, I'm not here to please them. I'm here to do something meaningful with the time I have on this earth. So let's put it a different way. I'm in an extremely privileged position where I can go explore and express freedom. And then to the question you're asking is, okay, you're building an asset manager. What do you want it to be? For me, it's quite simple. My contract is with the LPs. Whether you do a long-term succession-planned asset manager or whether you decide to go into runoff mode, the only real question is, do you believe in your strategy credible to generate the kind of returns your LPs want? And we know for a fact that there is, of course, arbitrage where people are running the AUM bandwagon because, you know what, I do another fund, I do another fund, I do another fund. At some point, I've made 20, 30 million bucks just on management fees, and hey, I'm done without needing to generate performance. So then that becomes a sort of ethical question, which is, to what extent do you stand behind your strategy as a way to deeply generate returns for your LPs versus are you trying to survive one more fund just because you're going to milk the machine? I, I want nothing to do with, I'm going to try and raise one more fund just to milk the machine as a general comment. Perhaps giving yourself this freedom to think about that is actually very venture-like based on something you said earlier, which is thinking about what's happening on the edges and what could be different or possible. So I think that is exactly on point, which is one of the downsides. So being a GP in a small fund and have partners, but I'm the only GP at this stage, you do get to that place where managing the fund, managing the LP relationships, blah, 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 it becomes most of what you do. 
And so your thinking time gets more and more constrained. For one thing, there's this advice that goes around the market, which is you have to be continuously maintaining LP relationships, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? Is that really good advice? Because I'd rather be in the market, think about the future, meeting founders, doing great investments, and spend as little time as possible managing your LPs. But you get into that thing where the LP meetings are getting elevated and they're like rock and roll productions in some five-star hotel in Paris. And now you have three newsletters that go out to prospective LPs, existing LPs, and potential LPs. So now that IR function is taking over your life. And I mean, what am I? I'm a pure play investor. So why would you want me to spend a second doing that? So there's a little bit of a vicious circle that you have to watch out for, which is that your GPs get taken out of the trenches. And some GPs want that, by the way, but at least for myself, this is where I will deliver the most value. And it's paramount to what we do, right? You're hitting on something that's, I think, a really interesting question for the venture world in some ways that the hedge fund world went through, which is a trader could be amazing on a trading floor at a bank, then starts a hedge fund. Not only are they just playing the game, but they have to manage the team. And being a player coach, not to say that that can't do it and can't do it well, as you've done over a number of years, but those are two different things. And I think you, you want to put people in the places where they, A, want to be spending the most time and B, where they can succeed. And I think it's an interesting question, just as we saw with the evolution of the hedge fund space over time as well. And there were remedies, there were multi-strat funds that were created, pod structures. It'd be interesting to see how the world of venture thinks about that over time too. Yeah, I think, look, it's the classic Example, in banking, the individual contributor that produces the most money gets promoted. And of course, what have you done? You've probably promoted the worst manager possible, and you've taken your best contributor out of the line. None of it makes sense. Now, banks have grown wise to this over time, of course, and they know how to manage this much better. In my case, I found that from fundraising to systems building and operations to setting strategy to investing, etc., I can kind of do all of it. And so this is something you learn about yourself. I have to say that I work better with peers. There's a part of me that's a little bit of the lone wolf hunter. And I want to come back to the pack on Monday and collaborate around the campfire, so to speak, and then go back hunting. I know that for myself, I'm a good example of somebody who can absolutely do coaching and growing people and managing people. I don't know that that's necessarily best use of my time or fundamentally what I want to do. Like when I was with Jeff Fagnan at Accomplice and Ryan Moore, we had this small hunting pack of peers. And man, were we good at our stuff. Yeah, we wrote no memos. We could finish each other's sentences. We had zero processes. We're like so fast. And decision-making was brilliant. And we lined up two beautiful funds because nothing about it looked like a firm. We were just a pure play, small boutique investment machine, great at winning deals, great at identifying them fast. And it was beautiful. It was so lean. It was the ultimate lean machine that for me probably still is the best environment. That's a great way to wrap this podcast up because I think it, it, it gets back to actually something you said in the beginning, artisanal venture. And I think if we think about and remember what venture was meant to do. You shared a lot of that. It's a great, great story of how one way, not always, but one way in which the venture world can work. So Fred, 
thanks so much for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going